people um, who spoke Spanglish. Um, and so for the first few years we were in Denver, I was going back every summer to teach in Guatemala City. I'm still adjunct there. Because I just didn't know what to do and I had to get out of this country just to you know, go back to Guatemala. And so, but uh, through a series of circumstances, we start an Hispanic program at Denver, Spanish speaking, and that's where I begin to meet uh, immigrants. This would have been about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. And then eventually I would uh, go to an Hispanic church, get involved with the Hispanic Ministers Alliance in the area. And I hear the stories. And what I began to see was that the people I would talk to who would say that they were Christians, if I were to talk to them about immigration, it wasn't a Christian conversation. It was about important things like the economy, schools, uh, hospitals, uh, you know, things like that, which you have to get to. But that's where the conversation would begin and end. It really wasn't a Christian conversation. So what I want to do in just a little bit is to examine some basic things about immigration and the Bible. I'm an Old Testament prof, so I asked myself, okay, if I were to do this as a Christian and go back to the scriptures, what do the scriptures have to say? And when I went into it, I didn't know. And what I began to see is, I'll share with you in just a moment, that it's all over the place in the scriptures. The second thing that's a a topic of discussion uh, that most people are not aware of, and you you can't expect them to be, is the history of immigration into this country. So immigration has been an issue actually since the founding of the Republic. Uh, I have an article written by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, It's interesting because uh, if you remember the colonies, the colonies, there was a part uh, in Pennsylvania that were uh, German-speaking, and uh, Benjamin Franklin was very worried about this. And in this article, he talks about, you know, the Germans have their own schools, their own newspapers, and their own churches, and their own stores. And he was worried that, that they wouldn't become anglicized. And then he says, oh, and, they, and the men beat their mothers. <laughs> uh, so you could see the prejudice, you see, even Benjamin Franklin. And, and then he said, and their pigmentation is not like ours. I'm going, Germans and English? I mean, it can't be that different, right? <laughs> but what you're seeing is uh, these issues are as old as the Republic. So that's important to know. Another thing about the history of this country is that until 1875, immigration was state-run jurisdiction. So uh, in 1875, it comes under the federal government. Now, this helps you understand the whole issue with Arizona a few years ago, where Arizona sued the Obama administration because they said, you know, the federal government's not doing its job and we're going to make our own laws. And that's where the Obama government then countersues Arizona. And really, at that point, Obama's administration was right because in 1875, it became federal. But what you are seeing is the classic American federal government, state right, playing itself out. Actually, 140 years after it had been decided, but that's what you were seeing uh, play itself out. The other thing that's interesting is when the first uh, federal laws begin to be uh, passed for immigration, which I'll refer to in just a moment, it was under the Department of the Treasury, which makes 
uh, since. Okay, but I want you to see what's happened. From the Department of the Treasury, it went under the Department of Labor. Because immigration is about jobs. You know where it is now? Immigration is housed under the Department of Homeland Security. Now what you're seeing is the change in mentality. From Department of the Treasury, Department of Labor, and now to, you know, Homeland Security. And what you're seeing is a very different mentality about uh, immigrants and immigration. And there's historic, historical reasons for all this. But it's interesting to trace that. Now, in 1875, it becomes uh, federal. <clears throat> But the very first major piece of immigration legislation in this country was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Now, uh, in 1848, uh, we have some people from Mexican descent. There was the Mexican-American War, 1845-1848. And 40% of Mexican landmass becomes the U United States. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 1848. 1849, they find gold in California. And so what the U.S. began to do, both private companies and the federal government, we began to import Chinese labor. So we imported the Chinese uh, to help build the railroads, help work the mines and the farms. Now what happened uh, was, in California, was at this time it's, it's uh, all state run. But what happens over time is the Chinese begin to multiply. And this begins to worry uh, those in California. So you start having race riots and lynchings in California. Uh, it'll become federal jurisdiction, but that whole uh, issue with the Chinese, uh, because California, for instance, passed a law where the men could get off the boats, but the women couldn't. And that way they wouldn't multiply. I mean, that was the idea. So anyway, so uh, it'll, it'll make its way up uh, the federal government, and what you have in 1882 is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which forbid any Chinese to come in to the country, uh, except for very few exceptions. And if you were born here as a Chinese, you could not be uh, an American citizen. <laughs> that law was not rescinded until 1943. Okay. Now, what we also did uh, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century as immigration began to shift from northern Europe, <clears throat> which would be, you know, the Germans, the English, uh, Swedes, Norwegians, things like this, which would populate this part of the country eventually, right? Uh, you begin to have Irish come. You have the Irish potato famine. Uh, very poor Irish. My, gran my grandfather and grandmother, my father's parents, were Irish immigrants. And so what you have, though, the problem was that you're also getting people from southern Europe, the Italians and uh, Portuguese, things like this. So the problem with that was that they were Catholic. And the U.S. saw itself as a Protestant country. So what the U.S. did was they put quotas on, on Italians and, and Irish and things like this because what we didn't want was, was uh, Catholics. Now, those of us who are white hairs, we remember the, the Kennedy uh, election. And I remember, because we were a Roman Catholic, I was raised Roman Catholic, was that one of the discussions in the country was uh, he would be our first Catholic president and would he obey the Pope you know, over the Constitution. I mean, that was the discussion that was going on. So what you're seeing is uh, the country has wrestled with uh, immigration since the founding of the Republic. Ironically, when you have the, the same decade that you have the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, 
is the same decade we put the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. And there's the message. Welcome all who come. And then, we don't want you. That's the message that the country has struggled with. And every country in the world does this. Every, our country has struggled with this now since the beginning. On the one hand, we welcome. On the other hand, we're very suspicious of any outsiders. Um, in my computer, it's in the car right over here, I have some uh, slides from the 19th century, the 1890s, and, um, and some of the political cartoons uh, of the Irish and of the Chinese and of Eastern Europeans, because the problem there was they were Jews, right? So, so what you're seeing are these political cartoons, you know, trying to, to paint a very negative picture of immigrants. So what I tell people is the only thing that's changed about immigration in terms of U.S. Uh, attitudes is just the, the skin color of the person coming in. Because <laughs> over the century, over the last two centuries, it, that's, it's been an ongoing issue. Okay. So, I mean, there is the historical discussion. Uh, there is the legal discussion. Um, you know, I've heard this so many times. My work has been with undocumented. And, you know, I hear things like this. Well, why don't they come in the right way? Okay, if you've just said that, you, you've just told me you know nothing about immigration law. <laughs> and let me just tell you a couple things, and then I'll move to the Bible. The U.S. immigration law, as it now stands, is about entry. All right? Even hear the jargon about the wall. It's about who comes in. Now, what most people don't know is over 40% of the undocumented came in legally. So the wall is kind of a, a, a moot point. Uh, they would have come in on student visas, tourist visas, and short-term uh, work visas, and then you stay. And so um, most people don't know that. And a statistic that I've heard, which is surprising to many people, is about 20% of the Koreans in this country are undocumented. But we're not bothered with them. You see, uh, we, we can't imagine them coming over a wall, which uh, not all undocumented do, but that's kind of the caricature we have. So they will come in on student visas and um, tourist visas, and then just stay. And if you know anything about the Korean community, it's very hermetic. And so they help each other, they keep quiet. One of my colleagues uh, in Denver was a Korean uh, theologian, Korean-American, and I said, is this true? He says, yes. He says, but this is the dirty little secret in the Korean churches that we just don't talk about because of the honor-shame culture of, of Asia, right? So it's a very interesting uh, thing. Another thing, if we understand that the immigration current law is about entry, what most people don't understand is that if you are here undocumented and you came in undocumented, that under current law, there is nothing you can do. Current law doesn't contemplate you being here without papers. So there's no fine to pay. There's no office to go to. There's no line to get in. Once you're here undocumented, there is literally nothing you can do to get right with the law under current U.S. law. So what you've seen in uh, immigration reform discussions, no one is talking open borders. That's a lie. No one. I'm sure if you go on YouTube, you can find some weirdo or something. But no one in the immigration reform movement is talking open borders. Nobody. Nobody is talking amnesty. Nobody. But that's, that's the red flag words. All right? The uh, compromise bill that was in the Senate uh, in 2012... Uh, I won't go to all the particulars. I'd be happy to if you want, but I won't because of time. Uh, if I were an undocumented immigrant and I signed today 
registered today under what that bill could have been. It would have taken me 13 years to get my legal status. Now, I don't know under any definition in any English dictionary that amnesty takes 13 years. Amnesty is what Reagan did in 1986, where he just decreed amnesty for millions of undocumented immigrants. That's amnesty, and that was Reagan. No one is talking about amnesty at all, but that's the language you hear in the rhetoric. So I think it's important to understand that if you're here undocumented, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing. Now, uh, if you're born here, uh, you're a U.S. citizen. Uh, Obama did this executive order, which was the DACA program, which if you were a small child and you came undocumented with your parents, that you have uh, permission to stay and to go to school and to, to, to work. But that's an executive order. It's not law. So any administration could take that away. Um, and then, you know, who knows how many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of young people who came here when they were one, two, three, four years old now would be not protected because now at least they're protected if they've gone through the paperwork. So that's, this, is the, this is the goal of immigration reform is to update the system. And one last piece that most people don't know is that U.S. immigration law works by quotas. So the total quota for unskilled labor in this country for the year stands at between five and 10,000 for the country. I mean, there's probably more than that here in Appleton. But what you're seeing is the quotas were established decades ago and it's so politically sensitive that no one wants to even touch the quotas. And um, it's like someone told me, you know, the illustration they used, it's like, you know, at one time a woman was a size four dress, but now the woman is a size 12. <laughs> and you're still trying to fit into the size four. I mean, that's what we're doing. And part of the reform bill was to uh, have the quotas change uh, according to U.S. economic needs. And so the quotas would change every year based on on economic needs, which is kind of common sense, right? Because we need unskilled labor. Uh, construction, uh, most of your uh, farm produce is done by um, undocumented immigrants. So we need, we need all, all kinds of unskilled labor. So the idea was to basically update the system. Uh, that was the debate, and you had both uh, parties who were actually working together on that. So, that, so one thing is the history of immigration and history of immigration law. Other thing is the laws that now stands. Those are interesting discussions. But let me speak very quickly about the Bible. And this is in the book in, in, in much more detail. Let me just mention a few things. Um, when you use something like illegal alien, okay, what these people have or don't have is a piece of paper. <laughs> But sometimes, uh, and I saw this uh, in a speech this week, where undocumented equals illegal equals violent criminal. I mean, this was kind of the, the logic of it. Uh, and illegal kind of can, can take you that way. Another thing uh, is alien. And what I tell people is, you know, we use that for outer space creatures. <laughs> you know, when does an alien become a human being? And this will take you to Genesis chapter 1, where every human being is made in the image of God. And what you find as well, it's interesting uh, in chapter 1 of Genesis, not only is it it's saying that, that every human being has consummate worth, 
We are also created in the image of God so that we might rule the earth and subdue it. Now you're talking about human potential. So when you're talking about potential, it can change the discussion. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's talk about the children who, who've come um, with their parents. And so if you are thinking about human potential as guiding your legal discussion, then you can talk about, well, the, what was called the DREAM Act, which would let these kids actually be, you know, move their way to citizenship. But the idea was, instead of punishing them for being here because their parents brought them here, the question now is, how do we facilitate all the energy and all the potential for the national good? Now you've switched legal discussion based on a different theological principle. Now people will go, well, why? Romans 13, obey the law. Okay, do you even know what the law says? It's, it's a bad law. <laughs> uh, and the beautiful thing about this country is we change laws all the time. We do. Uh, and this would be a good one to change because it's just a bad law. It's, it's outdated. It's, it's, it's just too old. It doesn't work anymore in the, in the 21st century. But then what I tell people too is, you know, Romans 13, I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible it's about page, uh, what, 1100? Why don't we go to page 1? Now we're going to get to 1100, but let's begin with Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin with the Bible, page 1. And let that begin to shed a light on our discussions. They're humanity. You've got to get to the legal discussions. I'm not denying that. But the question is, what is the tone and what is the purpose of those legal discussions? Is it about punishing? Or is it somehow to facilitate uh, their integration into society <clears throat> for the national good. Even as we organize things which are so chaotic now. I mean, those are kind of what we need to do. So, uh, image of God. The second thing that's interesting about the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, I'm an Old Testament prof, is uh, when you go into the Bible, what you have are narratives of migration all over the place. And it's actually very interesting because we are to subdue the earth and we are to fill it. Okay, how do you fill the earth? By moving. And what you see in the human DNA is the DNA for migration. The history of the world is the history of migration. Now, I don't know how it works here in Wisconsin because everyone just lives here until they die. <laughs> right? But in Denver... How, it's not like that way at all. I mean, if you can find anyone who was born in Denver, it's like, okay, you get a gold star. I mean, nobody's from Denver. So, you know, you're in a church, you say, how many of you are not from Denver? 80%, 90% of the hands go up. And I said, you migrated, didn't you? Across state lines, probably. Why did you come? Well, you came because you needed a new job. You know what? You just wanted to start over again. Or maybe you had family here and you wanted to join your family. Those are the very same reasons that immigrants come. They're crossing a line. It's an international line. But the principle is the same. We're all migrants. I just moved with my wife, my lovely wife. We've been married in three weeks for 40 years. Um, we've just migrated from the majestic mountains of Denver to the flat, humid Chicago West suburbs. 
Okay? And we came because of a job. And to get closer to our grandkids. The human story. And when you go into the Old Testament, it's about migration. You know what you have, for instance, is Abram is called from Ur of the Chaldees, they call it, right? Ancient Babylon area. Goes into Haran, <clears throat> Turkish-Syrian border today, and then he comes down into Canaan, which we would call Palestine, Israel-Palestine. But it's interesting, he comes, he receives the promise, and he builds altars, and he goes a bit further, builds another altar. That's all very good. But then about verse 8 or 9 of chapter 12 of Genesis, it says there was a famine in the land, and he and his extended family, which would be his wife and his nephew Lot, and their servants, go to Egypt looking for food. Now, that makes sense. Even today, Israel is a very dry place. And Egypt has the Niles. There's always water and there's crops and things. And so Egypt always had to deal with people coming in, looking for food. And we know from archaeology that there's a string of forts along the eastern frontier of Egypt in the desert. And so probably Abram and Sarai were coming up to one of these checkpoints. You remember how the story goes? If they ask you, Tell them you're my sister, not my wife. Now, think about it. They lie to get across the border. To eat. What, what's the option? Go back in the desert and die? Now, she's willing to take that risk as a woman. Okay, well, all that implies for Pharaoh's harem. That's what she was willing to risk so that everyone else could eat. So what you're seeing is <clears throat> the great father of the faith <laughs> lying to get across the border. <laughs> and she's willing to do anything that they can eat. This is the story of, of, of the Old Testament. And it's interesting, as they begin to, to grow, there's so much I'd like to do. <laughs> I, let me give you a couple of vignettes. I have so many more. But let me give you... Joseph. Again, I'm going to assume because, you know, you're in this great church and they teach the Bible. And maybe you haven't, where's Dan? You haven't, maybe you haven't done Genesis yet. I don't know. But I assume that all of you are kind of Bible experts. <laughs> well, remember Joseph, you know, he becomes an immigrant, not because he wants to, because his brothers hate him so much and they sell him, right? That's been a great family. Dysfunctional to the max. And so anyway, he makes his way up. Right? He's very honest and hardworking, and now all of a sudden he's a steward of, 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 uh, of Potiphar's household. And then his, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and he runs away. Well, who do you think the authorities are going to believe? The Egyptian or the immigrant? He goes to jail. You remember how he comes out, the dreams and everything, right? But then what happens is another family land, and his brothers are sent for food. You remember how that goes? He, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Now, that's kind of odd. Well, at his level uh, in Egypt, he would have had a shaved head and he would have painted his face. So that's why they don't recognize him. But he, he recognizes them. And it also says that he uses an interpreter, but he understands what they're saying. See? He goes behind the curtain and he weeps. Remember that story? Now, what you, if you think about an immigrant story, he never lost his mother tongue. You know, and in this country, it's okay to be bilingual. Yo soy bilingüe. Yo soy orgulloso de ser medio guatemalteco. Yo hablo este idioma tan bello que es el español. 
And I can do English and el español sin problema. I can go back and forth. Boom, 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 boom. That's a gift. It's not a threat. There's Joseph, the bilingual. Right? There's more in there, but let me jump to Daniel. That's an interesting story. You know, if you go to Daniel, and it's, you know, be a Daniel, you've done that, like with, you know, vacation Bible school or something. <laughs> but think about it. His country would be devastated by the Babylonian armies. He probably lost family in the war. Would have lost friends in the war. They lost everything. And now that empire is giving him a new name. Wouldn't even let him be called by his name. We were talking last night about what do you call your children when you're by bicultural marriage? Now you have to figure out what, what, what name what name can an Anglo pronounce? Santiago. Or Santi. Right? My wife, her her name is Joan. Well, Hispanic ears have a hard time distinguishing Joan and John. So they'll call her Joan. They can separate the O and the A. Okay, that, that makes sense. Okay, the names. They change the names. You know, you're not going to be who you think you are, and we're going to reprogram you to serve us, and you know what? We destroyed everything you had. And we took everything you had, but now you, we own you. And they're the very best. But what they say is this. We want our food. How do you know... There are not many Hispanics in this town, apparently. But in Denver. How do you know when you're in an Hispanic part of town? Taquerias. Pupuserias. Panaderias. The food. Right? And so he says... Let us keep our food. You may take my name. You may force me to serve you. But I'm still a Jew. And we're going we're gonna to believe in our God. And we're going to eat our food. You know, I take students, uh, did in Denver, to, to Guatemala every other year. And I tell them, you know, in Guatemala... We eat black beans. Better than the Mexican brown stuff. <laughs> we can do beans any way you want. We have them for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. We can have whole beans, arroz con frijol, rice and beans. We can have bean soup. We can have frijol volteado, where you kind of mash it up and it, you let it kind of get kind of dry and you slice it and you put white goat cheese with salsita. <laughs> And so I say, you know, beans do stuff. So you need to kind of get in training for this, right? Oh, Dr. Carol, it's okay. We do. We, we've been to Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> after about after about three days, Dr. Carol, for the love of God, McDonald's, please. It's the food. You ever read Daniel as an immigrant story? There's many more. Lastly, and then I'll open up for questions. The Old Testament law is unique of, among law codes of the ancient world in many ways. But one of the, the things that you find in no other law code is legislation for the foreigner. 
And in the ancient world, foreigners had two main problems. One is, you're, you're moving into agrarian societies. But in Israel, the land was owned through the families. And it would be you know, passed down through the, through the sons, the eldest son. So if you're from the outside, um, it's very hard to own land. And if, if, it's a, if you're all peasants, which they were, most of them, we think about 90 to 95% of the population were peasant farmers, the, you know, you've got to ask Israelites for work. And we think that most of them were kind of day laborers. It's like what you find in the parable where, where the guy goes to the central square and finds people waiting for work. Or maybe it's the Home Depot. Again, maybe you don't have that here, but if you go to some parts of this country, they're at the Home Depot waiting in the parking lot, waiting for the parable of Jesus. Same thing in the ancient world. Things don't change. The other thing is, there was no social security system or welfare. So if you got sick, maybe you're a farmer, peasant farmer. If you got sick or one of your animals got hurt or died or something, or if your wife, you know, was pregnant and, and the childbirth or someone got sick or whatever, in the ancient world and in ancient Israel, this would be taken care of by extended family. The problem if you're a foreigner is, what is it that you don't have? Extended family. That's why when you go to Hispanic churches, the church becomes the extended family. And that's why in Hispanic churches, oftentimes, they all stay and have lunch together. Because la iglesia es la familia. <laughs> and what you find is, recognizing this, the Old Testament law has provisions for work, paying them a fair wage on time. Let me repeat that. Paying them a fair wage on time. Why do you think people hire undocumented workers? Because they're cheap. And an undocumented worker can appeal to no one. Fair treatment in the courts. That's in the Old Testament law. All kinds of provisions for food, even letting them come in to their worship services. Okay? The most precious thing that they had. And then what you find in Deuteronomy 10. So God says this, and with this I'll close and open for questions. Hope I haven't gone too long. God says, you know, I don't show any partiality. You know. But he says, I brought you out of Egypt. Don't do what they did to you. Basically, don't become the Egyptians. <laughs> then he says, I love the immigrant. He says that. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 19. I love the foreigner. And you will too. I love the foreign, he says, I give them food and I give them clothing. How does God give food and clothing to the foreigner? Through his people. So when people say, uh, why should I love the foreigner? Because the Bible said God does. God does. Do you need a better reason than that? I can't find one. <laughs> and the word there is the word for immigrant. Interesting. Do we have you know, immigrant memories this should remind us? Well, what we have is St. Patrick's Day, right? We all wear green. Right? Even if you're not Irish. We all wear green and we drink green beer. Especially in Wisconsin. 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 Right? 
and it is Oktoberfest, and we all drink beer. Because it's the Germans, and the Germans drink beer, so we're all going to drink beer. Especially in Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin. Or maybe it's Columbus Day, and that's what group? The Italians. We have parades and all kinds of stuff. Or maybe it's, you know, it's a home recipe. So I'll stick with the, with the German thing, right? So what do you eat for Christmas? Well, we eat strudel. Oh, really? Yes, because, you know, we're German. Really? Uh, you ever been there? No, no, but uh, we're German. <laughs> uh, do you speak German? No, 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 but that's our heritage. And we've done, you know, the genealogy thing, and we go back to royalty. <laughs> right? All these genealogies end up with royalty somewhere, right? It's got to be some kind of mega scam, but we're all kind of royalty, right? <laughs> but what you have is our immigrant memories. Food, beer, piñatas. <laughs> and the very things that God said never to forget. Remember how they treated you in Egypt? And we forgot the Irish ghettos, didn't we? And we forgot that the Italians were the wops without papers. And we forgot that the Germans were the krauts. We marginalized them in World War I and World War II. We forgot about what we did to the Japanese American citizens in World War II. We put them in internment camps in Colorado, California, other places in this country. All those immigrant stories, we forgot the dark side of our immigrant history. We forgot. And now you know why God says, don't ever forget. <laughs> because when you do, you'll become the Egyptians. And if you read the book of Exodus, what did the Egyptians do? They were scared of the Israelites. There's too many of them. They're everywhere. So they began to make it harder for them to work, even kill their little boys. But it was so bizarre, they made it harder for them to work. They had to find their own straw. Remember that story? Which makes no sense, because they were supposed to build Egyptian buildings. You would think they would want the straw to make them better buildings. It makes no economic sense what the Egyptians do. But it makes cultural sense of how they feel. And that's what we're doing in this country, isn't it? We need the labor, but we're going to make it as hard as we can for them to find work. <laughs> that makes no economic sense at all. But it makes cultural feeling sense. And we've become the Egyptians. Okay. There's so much more, but I'm happy to entertain any questions. Okay. I have my assistant here. Yes. Oh, he with small ears. <laughs> uh, well, I, this one runs through this one, so we'll just, you can stand and ask your question. And then um, you can ask your question in Spanish or in English. Either way is fine. And uh, we'll kind of translate back and forth. Um, and I didn't say this at the beginning. It's important. We do this after the service. Um, this is not the position of the PCA. It's not the position of Emmaus Road. It's a place to be able to dialogue about this discussion. And uh, Danny Carroll's um, an expert in it. And so I'm sure some of you might have disagreeing views or haven't thought about it in that kind of way. That's okay. Um, yeah. And... Uh, I know Danny Carroll, where you say, oh, he takes one side. Well, you know, I think let's listen and, and hear where he's coming from. And, uh, but I, it, this is a church where we can dialogue about these things. He's not speaking from the pulpit. He's speaking from after church 
discussing this kind of issue. That's why I'm standing over here and yes, that's not behind me. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, questions? Let's go ahead. When I came recently to this country, I noticed that people here were very uh, committed to law. But I uh, perceive that the concept of legality is, is uh, the relative. So, for instance, if you're from Guatemala, but you're a doctor, and you can uh, give good lectures and conferences in this country, I'll invite you to my church, and I can give you, write you a check for giving a good lecture here. But if you're a Guatemalan who's cutting my grass, I can't give you a $10 check because that's against the law. So I can pay you if you've come from Guatemala and you live there, but I can't pay you if you're from Guatemala and you live here. Uh, well, let's put it in English. I'm going to answer in English. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, legal standing is important. That, that's going to be the difference. The, the question that we have to get to eventually is to whom do we give legal status and, and what is the way to get there? The problem with current U.S. law is that once you're inside, there is no way there. That's the problem. So um, what we need to do is, is to make legality accessible. Because here's the point. There is one discussion about the border, which is an important discussion. I'm not going to minimize that, okay, the border. But that's about entry. That's an important discussion. But we also need to chart entry for people coming in on student visas and tourist visas. I mean, that current law doesn't do that. I mean, so not only does that border need to be organized, but that whole other kind of entry, which U.S. law doesn't really think about, needs to be organized better than it is now. But then it's a separate discussion about what you do with the 11 to 12 million that are already here. Because all that discussion has nothing to do with people who are already here. Under current law, the only thing that you can do under current law is to deport. That's the only option under current law. Well, that's not really an option. <laughs> you can't deport 11 million people. I mean, you can't. You know, not only where do they go, but I'll be very blunt. This country can't afford to lose 11 million consumers. Houses, trucks, cars, food, I mean, and your workers. You, you can't just eliminate who, who's going to cut the grass, who's going to pick the fields. You just, I mean, economically, it's impossible. So what happens is, because of the political game, these people are in limbo. So one of the discussions is, how do we make some legal status? Now, if it's going to be citizenship or just legal status, that's a legitimate discussion. But how do we, how do we have that discussion, which is a constructed discussion for the 11 million people that are here? Yeah. Back on that point, I, I like what you said about 
the current immigration law is just old and outdated. And yeah. I don't know the details as much as you, but I want to give an analogy of, uh, at one point in my life, I was a ninth grade social studies teacher. And in my first year, you know, I came up with class rules and procedures that I thought would work. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, they were not working. And I thought, okay, so what am I going to do now? If I, if I say they're not working, it's going to kind of like make me look bad. And I quickly realized, who cares? The most important thing is to get something that works. And so I gave myself freedom for the rest of the year to stand up in front of my kids and say, you know, this is my first year doing this. And what we were doing is not working, so now we need to do this. And um, that, I think, is what our politicians on both sides of the aisle need to do with immigration. In fact, they have a better reason, like you said, that, you know what, it may have worked back then, but it's not working now. And, and everyone knows it, and we've been going along by kind of ignoring the law for a while. And that's not fair to people on both sides of the issue. And so we just need to admit it. It's not working, and let's fix it. Yeah, let me add a, a couple of things. Uh, I think you're right. The assumption is it's U.S. law, it must be a good law. I mean, that, that's how we function, which is, you know, it's an interesting assumption. The problem is it's just outdated. So when people are talking about reform, it's not talking, like I said, not talking amnesty. No one's talking amnesty. It's not talking about open borders. No one is talking about open borders. The rhetoric is saying that, but that's, that's not true. But let me give you kind of the anti-left rhetoric, uh, anti-left example. So I'm reading something the other day, and Hillary says, I'm going to abolish, I'm going to close down all the detention centers, the privately owned. Now what most people don't know is that most immigrant detention centers are privately owned. One of, there's two major firms in the U.S. One of them is GEO, uh, and it's the old Wacken Hut. Wacken Hut uh, is an international, or was now GEO, security firm. They run a lot of the detention centers. The U.S. government pays them over $100 per day per head. Now what you're seeing then is immigration detention is a massive, massive business of billions of dollars. In fact, uh, about three years ago, the sheriff in um, the county where uh, you have Colorado Springs actually said they make budget by picking up undocumented immigrants. <laughs> All right? Now, so if you're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, which it is, and Hillary says, we're just going to close those down. Okay, honestly... You're going to close down a multi-billion dollar business that has thousands of jobs, that has all these other people that are, that are you know, living off of that, whether it's the food companies and the utility companies. You're just going to close that by, you know, presidential fiat. To be perfectly blunt, that's not going to happen. Who do you think is lobbying for no change in immigration law. Well, it's, it's the big detention company. It's, it's GEO. <laughs> they, don't want, they don't want reform because it's big business. You're not going to close down that multi-billion dollar industry just because you're president. It isn't that easy. 
So what you see is both sides of the aisle aren't talking truth. They're talking rhetoric. One of them to gain the Hispanic vote and one of them to, to play off of the fear of immigrants, which is a, a human, natural thing. You know, one other thing, I, I talk too much, but I hope it's interesting. When, if you're in a neighborhood and someone moves door to you, next door to you, there's a couple things you do. You look through the blinds. <laughs> Are they going to cut their grass and, and take out the garbage? And then you do the reconnaissance. The brownies to the front door. Just want to welcome you into the neighborhood. We're always suspicious of outsiders, even if they look like us. So the fears and the angst, that's all normal. Right? So, so it's okay. It'll never be easy. Yeah. I have a question. How, as a Christian believer, do we deal with the, the idea of loving the stranger and the immigrant, but yet um, dealing with the current problem that we have with people that are already in this country that may be Islamic radicals, terrorists possibly, or even criminals? You know, how do we deal with that? knowing that we need to love the, the stranger and the, and the immigrant, but yet protecting our way of life, our families, from what could potentially destroy them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'd answer it in several ways. One is, if you were to go to the 9-11, none of them came in through immigration policies. All right? And what, you know, if you're talking Islamic terrorists, you're not talking Hispanics. All right? So what we need to do is to realize that there will be, this is, this is maybe too nice of a way to say it. Let me just say, there will be some bad apples. I mean, there will be. And as an immigrant reform person, for me to deny that would be unbelievably naive and untrue. But I would say this. I don't care if you're black, white, brown, or yellow, or whatever combination. There's going to be a percentage of violent, sinful people. In this country, totally unrelated to Islam. You know, we had Columbine in Denver. I mean, nothing to do with this. This is what humans do. So I think we, what we need to do is make our immigration policy so that it works, so we can screen as best we can. We need to do that. But we need to also, I think, understand that that percentage is so small. What most people don't realize is that there are fewer uh, violators of the law among Hispanics than among Anglos. Why? I'll give you an example. I'm in an Hispanic church, the one I went to for so many years in Denver. I heard a sermon about not going over the speed limit. Now, why are you telling your people that? You, can, you don't get pulled over. You, you would never hear that in an Anglo church. I mean, they're trying the best they can to keep their head down. They don't want to be unnoticed. They don't want to bother anyone. They just want to make a living for their kids. So I think one is we need to screen as best we can. But if we're totally honest, there's probably going to be a few that will get through. I mean, that's just... And then we need to be realistic about the vast, vast majority of them are just people like you and me. 
What I have found, just a second, let me just say one last thing. What I have found is what changes people's minds is getting to meet immigrants. Because here's another one. Well, you just don't want to learn English. Okay, you just told me you don't know any immigrants. English is very hard. Right? I mean, we do all kinds of things, and, and, and we spell words differently, uh, or spell words the same and pronounce them differently. You know, they tell you in, in grammar school, it's, you know, uh, what is it? I before E, except after C. You know, all this stuff. I mean, it's a very complicated language. And the pronunciation of English, there are certain sounds Anglos cannot make. Burro. Burro. No, no, burro, bur burro. Okay, you're pretty good. <laughs> but you know, I have a hard time. Or like my my little grandson, I'm Ito, right for abuelito, so Ito. But I'm, you know, I'm Ito. <laughs> no, Ito, Ito. Okay, but if you talk to a Spanish speaker in Spanish, you cannot have an S followed by a hard consonant. Doesn't happen. So you'll say, say stop, stop. No, no, stop, stop, stop. Because you can't do that in Spanish. It doesn't, you can't. So I mean, the language, all of this is part of the dance. Um, anyway, it's very human. Yeah, you had a question. Uh, it's sort of related to the last question. I know that we've been focusing throughout this question and answer section there, talking about uh, immigrants coming to America. Yeah. But Europe has also been having a lot of immigrants yeah, yeah. coming there, and I think a lot of the recent terror attacks have been committed by people who were immigrants from, say, the Middle East coming yeah. to the country. Yeah. So I was just curious what your thoughts Yeah, great question. Yeah, great question. I would say this. First thing, we need to, to distinguish immigrants from refugees. They're not the same. Or asylees, something totally different. So, you know, when you're talking about what's going on in Europe, okay, which category are we talking about, just to get the conversation more precise. But this is where, you know, God has been very good to this country. You know, what I hear is, this country is becoming increasingly post-Christian. Well, maybe among white people, God has brought literally millions of Christians who are Hispanics. Amen. By the grace of God, He is bringing us Christians. We're not Europe. We're not. And we should be grateful for that. Maybe, because when I've talked to Hispanic pastors, they'll talk like this. We think God has brought us here to re-evangelize this country. Every major denomination in this country is either holding steady in its numbers or growing because of immigrant churches. I don't care if you're Southern Baptists or whatever. Immigrant churches are saving the church in the U.S. demographic. Whether it's Korean churches, which are Presbyterian, uh, you know, Baptists, Assembly of God, whatever you want. <clears throat> so I think, I think, you know, we need to, 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 to realize that this isn't Europe. The other thing that I would say, just about the Syrian thing, can we open some doors? I am really hot. Um, maybe because of all the hot air in the room. <laughs> Um, but I would just say this one last thing about, about that question um, you know someone said to me about um, um, about Syrian refugees and I'm going 
there are at least four million Syrian refugees in massive refugee camps in Turkey, Lebanon, in Jordan. Um, and their, their moms and dads and kids and grandparents fleeing war. And if you know anything about refugee vetting, it's not to get on a plane to come over. They have to be vetted. You're talking about taking in, you know, moms and dads and grandmas and, and kids. Now, if you're an Islamic terrorist and you want to come that way, with all the vetting that needs to happen before they let you into this country, that's not a really good strategy. Because you're leaving yourself exposed to getting found out at some point along the vetting process. So will there be, maybe, yeah, perhaps, but I wouldn't think it'd be, you know, a large percentage at all, yeah? I have a question regarding the Old Testament. I remember correctly, the Romans kind of dealt with immigration issues as well. Everyone wanted to be a Roman citizen, like Paul. And eventually, they took it. And I'm kind of curious to see what parallels we see between um, how Rome dealt with uh, immigration as well as how America's dealing with immigration, if there are any you know, things to be learned from that. Oh, thank you. In the... Um, Ten years I've been speaking on immigration, that is the first time I've ever been asked that question. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's an interesting thing. Um, and I know very little about Roman law. Uh, Old Testament finishes before Rome rises to power. Um, but I know that, that sometimes it depended if you were, um, if you were a veteran. Uh, some cities could buy citizenship for the town. Um, but, you know, I, I'd have to claim ignorance about, about that. Um, you know, that isn't, you know, what, how do you become a citizen? And what we don't realize is if your family came over through Ellis Island, there was no law. If you did not have tuberculosis or they didn't think you were an idiot, meaning mentally challenged, you were in. That was it. In the 19th century, which we have the Swedes, the Germans, and all that, it wasn't like today at all. And the U.S. really wanted a lot of people because it was just a lot of empty land. So what you have is all the Swedes, they come up to Wisconsin and, you know, Minnesota, right? And they're all Swedes and Norwegians, right? So what they would do is they migrate to certain parts of the country. You know, like I was asking Moises, you know, you know, and his wife. So why did you come here? Well, we have family. Well, the Swedes did the same thing. Why did you go to, to Minnesota? Well, because there was people from my little town on the Norwegian fjord. <laughs> they were all kind of Swedish farmers, right? I mean, it's very human. Yeah, you had a question? Or are you just scratching your head? All right, raise your hand. You're, yes. That 
What I have seen is that both parties have played the Hispanic vote. They get invited to the White House, they speak to the president, oh yes, I'm with you guys. Uh, presidential executive order, what a lot of people don't know is he's deported more people in his two terms than any president in the history of this country. Almost three million people he's deported. Mm -hmm. See, the Hispanics know this, right? And so they're ambivalent about Hillary. Hillary voted for some of this stuff, you know, or, or proposed or uh, defended it as Secretary of State. Okay, and then you have the Trump rhetoric. That's not very inviting. <laughs> so, you know, so what you find is um, you don't even know, you don't really know. I was in a meeting with, with uh, President Biden. I was telling you this. And he came into Denver, he was supposed to meet with seven uh, faith leaders, and evangelical faith leaders. And so I was asked to go. We were supposed to meet in a coffee shop. They wouldn't tell us where, for security reasons. Okay, so then about an hour before the meeting, we get a phone call. Please be at this coffee shop at this time. So we show up, and the security's there. And, you know, it's a, a big coffee shop, and they get everybody out, and they make you come back in. They do the metal detector thing. And we sit there. He gets there late. Motor, motorcade, the whole deal. He comes in, and he's supposed to be there to listen to what we had to say. He never stopped talking. <laughs> and one of the Democratic senators, uh, Mark Udall at the time, uh, would interrupt and say, um, Mr. Vice President, you know, Danny would like to say something, or, you know, Bill would like to say something. And, um, but he wasn't there to listen. He was there for photo op. And so I think that's what we've learned, is that they're listening, but are they listening? Tú tenías la mano, ya. Si me puedes explicar cuál es la diferencia entre refugiados y personas que vienen sin documentos. What's the difference between refugees and undocumented? Yo soy ayudo a Waterloo también y a los he's asking what's the difference because what the U.S. government will do is they'll give you an apartment, they'll help you with English learning, uh, job training, things like this. <laughs> Refugees... Uh, mm -hmm. Y para las personas que no vienen de ese país, no sé si sabían que la... Sí. 
What he's doing is the contrast between refugees and, and the undocumented, for instance, uh, who get less than minimum wage oftentimes, and they don't have right to uh, insurance. And so if anyone gets sick, they have to pay, pay full price. And, you know, you know, why is that? And what we're seeing in this country is these are hardworking people. Most of them will make maybe $20,000 a year, and now they're starting to get a backlash against them. Uh, a refugee is, and you would know so much more about this than I would, but a refugee, um, as far as I understand it, this has worked through the United Nations Refugee Service. And every nation has a quota of how many refugees they will take in a year. So the U.S. quota is about 75,000, 85,000 uh, that we will take max, maximum, a year. Now, because it's run through the United Nations, friends, since we were in a small group that, and we sponsored uh, uh, a family that came out of a Sudanese, uh, sorry, uh, a uh, Kenyan um, refugee camp because of the war in the Sudan and Somalia. They had been waiting in that refugee camp for 12 years. All right? And so we helped sponsor them uh, while well, we received them through the Lutheran service, which is one of the largest in the country, the Lutheran uh, refugee service, resettlement. So what the U.S. government will do, it'll work with uh, U.S. agencies, Lutheran service, world relief, and so the government works with the ministries. But through those ministries or agencies, there will be uh, an apartment, uh, you know, um, some money every month and some basic help. That's because a refugee is, is, a, is a very different category. who's come through a very different kind of system. They're, they're not people who just came across. They had to, they had to do all the paperwork to get, to get here through the United Nations. So that's why it's so different. But this is what happens. If you're undocumented, uh, you cannot have insurance. Or you can, but we had, I have a friend who uh, bought home insurance, apartment insurance. And when his apartment flooded and he went to, um, to for the help, right, um, because he didn't have a proper social security number, they denied the claim. And he'd been paying for years. So they're happy to take your money. Right. Here's another one people don't know. Another friend, in fact, it was the same guy. I said, do you pay your taxes? He said, yes, I pay my taxes. What the U.S. government does, most people don't know this, they give you an ITN number where if you're not a citizen, you can still pay taxes. <laughs> and so I asked him, I said, so are you paying? Yes. I said, so why do you pay taxes? Well, because if the reform comes, they will think I'm one of the good ones, is what he was saying. And I said, so then the U.S. government knows where you live? Yes. And I said, so how come immigration hasn't come by to pick you up? He says, immigration does not talk to IRS. Because the U.S. government takes in literally billions of dollars a year from undocumented immigrants from their work. Social Security is going bankrupt. They're not going to cut off that pipeline. So IRS refuses to talk to immigration. Though IRS knows exactly where they live. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Two questions. So one is, uh, I'll play the old There's a difference between a sojourner and a legal immigrant. I mean, you're just saying a livable job. You're saying a sojourner is a legal immigrant. That's just not the same. I mean, there's a difference between people coming in here as immigrants and refugees 
than people coming in here, quote unquote, illegally. And that's not a true soldier. Was he like this in seminary? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> um, what's your second question? No, because if it's related, I'll respond. My second question is, what can we do as a church? Okay, that's a different question. Okay. All right. There is a certain conservative part of the evangelical church, and they're using one particular book, and I know the author. Is that Wheaton, right? No, no. He's at Trinity in Chicago. He's nearby. He is. I know Jim. He's a good guy. He's just wrong on this one. <laughs> uh, he tries to make... The case, which really most people on the academic end don't go with, uh, but he's been picked up at a popular level. You can see why. Because he'll say that the Bible is talking about legal immigrants. It's not talking about undocumented immigrants. And I'm going, okay, what well, you've just read back 21st century into the ancient world. And that, that just, it, it, I mean, that just makes no sense. So when you have someone like Ruth who comes in, they're not checking her papers. Right? There's nothing in the law about legal status, is if you're living there among them or not. I mean, that's, that's the point. So I think his argument just doesn't work. But, um, and if you read his argument, uh, he sits very heavily on Romans 13. And he begins a discussion on legality. And I, what I say is, no, we begin not with their legality, we begin with their humanity. And let that define the discussions about legality. You see, and he 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 just does it all backwards, I think. So um, I've actually written a, something about that book. So uh, the other one about the church, maybe that'd be a place to close because you know I'm happy to go on, but I know people have um, Sunday afternoons, and I'm happy to stay and talk. Uh, so that's fine. Uh, and there's books here. Please buy them so I don't have to take them back. Um, <laughs> um, what a church can do. Uh, there are several things. And again, I don't know the demographics of Appleton. Uh, but, you know, if you're looking at ministry, after school programs, they help the children. Uh, in Denver schools, and in Chicago, and even in Wheaton, um, the school systems are full of kids from all these different countries, and at home they're not speaking English. And so how can you help them with English? How can you help them with their homework? Uh, if they're older, how can you help them with computer skills? I mean, just basic service to families. Um, I think one of the things that Moises and I were talking about last night with Luis, and um, it might be something to consider. If you believe that what you do here is important, uh, it might be interesting to think about an Hispanic uh, program or church, which may be a bit different, you know, it may be a little más alegre, it may be a little more lively, uh, uh, but maybe not. I mean, we go to an Anglican church, it's Hispanic in, in, in Wheaton, and it's very much, but they have, you know, the guitars and stuff. Um, so that, that would be a couple places. And then what some people do um, that I think is important which is more of a stretch. You'd have to kind of find out where you are on the spectrum is um, if you have someone in the church that can, who actually understands immigration law, um, 
you know, because what happens, again, I'm speaking out of my experience in Denver, you have people who will tell undocumented immigrants, if you give me $5,000, I can get you your papers. Well, if you know immigration law, there is nothing they can do. So what, the, what these desperate immigrants are doing are getting taken by these shysters. Right. And so, you know, if you had, you know, uh, a person uh, or maybe on a Saturday morning, you know, uh, someone who can kind of explain for an hour, this is the status of U.S. immigration law today. Um, that would be helpful because you talk about rumors going in communities, you know, because people are always asking me, do you know of a good lawyer? Do you know, you know, the, you know uh, a family that I... Uh, got to know a little bit in that church in, in Denver. Um, he was picked up. Uh, he was stopped. Uh, it was uh, it was his birthday, and uh, three kids, two of them born here, and uh, he was had dropped off a roofer. I mean, this is classic, right? Roofer drops off his buddy. Is going home. He gets pulled over. He's actually they follow him for blocks is waiting for him to make a mistake because they've seen his face. And he doesn't, and he's got a ponytail. And so after a while, they just pull him over anyway. Well, he gets picked up, and because the detention center in Denver that day was full, 1,400 beds, he gets sent to Colorado Springs, 65 miles away. His wife's desperate, frantic, trying to find out where he is. Because it's his birthday. They were waiting for him. Okay. Now, uh, he's begun a process. Um, and it's all going all the legal pieces of it. But uh, he keeps getting postponed. So he's been in this limbo now for about six years. He has a report every month uh, to a certain office, sign in. And he has, to, has these court dates. And because there's such a backlog... Um, we think that it would take about eight years to clear the backlog. No one knows these kind of stories either. So, um, um, but I met his lawyer, who was a jerk, and treated him like dirt, and I was getting angry. I was in this guy's office. And uh, he was doing things that, to me, were very humiliating. And um, come to find out that he has charged him so far But he's so far in now that he's worried about if he changes lawyers, something's going to happen. So, I mean, that would be a a, a huge help. Moises, do you think, or Luis, would there be something else you might want to mention about what the church might do? Yeah, she'd like to say something. Sí, con mucho gusto. Okay. Yo trabajo en un salón de belleza. I work in a beauty salon. Y la mayoría de mis clientes son latinos. And most of my uh, clients are Latin background. Este, la mayoría de la leche que ustedes se toman en aquí en este estado viene de gente que trabaja en los en los um, pharma, pharma. Sí, las fincas. Las fincas, yeah. most of the milk you drink comes from uh, local farms where these people work. Y claro que hay mucho abuso en ellos. 12 horas, 9 dólares la hora. They, uh, there's a lot of, uh, they take advantage of them. They work 12 hours a day, 9 dollars an hour. Pero 
Ese no es el problema para mí. That's not the problem for me. Es el, el, um, lo que están sufriendo las familias acerca de eso. It's about how these families are suffering because of all that. Okay, hay mucha necesidad de Jesús. There's a lot of need for Jesus. Y la mayoría de los hombres se hacen alcohólicos. And you have a high uh, incidence of alcoholism among the men. Porque hay un corte, vienen a este país, dejan a su familia allá, entonces, ¿quién tiene que quitar ese dolor? El alcohol. A lot of men will come and leave their families behind uh, in Latin America and they'll come and, and the family connections are, are cut off. And so how do you fill that hole? You begin to drink. Um, tengo muchos clientes con marcas en el cuerpo de que a veces van manejando y a veces toman o muchos de ellos incluso se han querido quitar la vida. She has clients who have marks on their bodies where they've been in a wreck because they were drinking or they've tried to commit suicide. Most of the children grow up alone because, because both parents are working long hours. And they have to uh, support the family here and support their family back in Mexico. Eh, los anglosajones I wish the Anglo-Saxons, the whites es que no ayudaran económicamente we're not looking for economic help sino que les hablen de Jesús but they speak uh, to them about Jesus eso es lo único que necesitan los latinos That's necesitan a Jesús para que todo pueda funcionar en sus casas they need Jesus so that everything will work as it should in their homes otra de las cosas en mi opinión propia y probablemente voy a ser juzgada. Another thing that I like to say, this is my own opinion for which I may be judged. Este es de que yo no quisiera que el presidente nos diera papeles a nadie. I wish the president would not give us any documents. Yo quisiera que no hubiese permitido el aborto ni el casamiento homosexual. I wish instead that there wouldn't have abortions in this country and same-sex marriage. So. Prefiero mil veces, aunque yo tenga que sufrir algo. I prefer a thousand times more if I have to suffer. De que no se hubiera permitido eso. That this country would not have permitted the other things. Eso nos va a traer consecuencias. Because that will bring consequences to this country. One last thing, uh, and I would just jump on that. There is a high incidence of alcoholism and drug uh, use among Hispanic families because of the uh, pressure and the fear. Uh, and so um, there's actually a group um, in Indiana that I know of that does work with and they may have connections uh, with Hispanic families uh, because of the alcohol and drug abuse uh, because they, they live under so much tension and fear uh, and then what you also have is uh, spouse and child abuse because the man gets humiliated at work, gets treated badly for low wages and he comes home and he takes it out on the kids and on the wife it's all very human But that would be another way of ministering to the Hispanic community. Do, do the Hispanic women learn English or are they generally... Because then you really can't go and speak services particularly well either. And I know that they were told, you know, if you don't do this, then worshiping you're doing yeah, yeah, I think it all depends. And one, one thing that I would mention... Um, Under current law, there is one thing uh, that an undocumented woman can get status. 
if she can prove that she's a victim of spouse abuse, she can report her husband to the authorities. Um, and she, so an abused woman can, that's like one of the only exceptions. But whether they speak Spanish or not depends on the person and the family. Well, thank Dr. Carroll very much for it. And we talked about wisdom today. We need wisdom as a church. How can we love the Hispanic community well? What does that look like? What does it look to love the immigrants? I, I mean, I have, I have some ideas, but we need the Lord to be able to speak to us and give us steps of what we should be doing. If we should be doing something, what does it look like? So let's pray right now for that. Pray. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, whether they are Hmong in our community, whether there are Latinos in our community,